The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and I'm here today with my friend Gary Owen. What's up, John? What's up, Gary? Nothing. <laughs> well, thanks for stopping by. Today, we're at Sticks Cigar Lounge in beautiful Brentwood, California. Not the Brentwood to be confused with OJ. Not that one. Northern California. Yeah. All my friends back in the Midwest, when I say Brentwood, think that I'm very, very wealthy and can afford to live in that Brentwood, mm-hmm. but I can't. I think you can. Right when now. the numbers come in off this podcast, <laughs> wait. Right. Just, just wait for it. Yeah. But we're at Sticks right now, so it's time to go ahead wait, 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 wait. and light it up. Wait, wait till you light it up. What? Got your Christmas present. Uh-oh. On camera? Oh, my God. Hold on. Hold on. RP. Signed by Rocky Signed Patel. Signed by Rocky Patel. First and last name. Oh, my God. Oh, ho, ho. it's the lightsaber. Oh, my God. All right. I don't know if there's butane in it. Listen. I hope there is. Listen. Eat your heart out, Steven Salats. <laughs> you know, he's going to want to get one right away. <laughs> Ain't going to have it autographed by <laughs> no. Rocky Patel. No, I'll sign it, though. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, should we see if there's butane in it? We'll try it. All right. Let's see. Set the whole podcast up. Ed, be careful. Oh, boy. You got to flip it up. You got to flip it up yourself. Flip it up this way? Yeah. Oh, God. Hold it. No butane in it? All right. Oh, this thing's a garbage. Ah! That's why it got sent through the mail. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you. Yep. Now I have to get him a gift. Will you put that down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know what? I'm going to use my matches now. Because that thing doesn't work. Mm. Mm. Do they have uh, butane or butane here at mm. the cigar? No. No? I figured they would. Oh, man. We are going to hotbox Ed right out of here. Great. <laughs> so... Gary Owen, comedian and actor, one of the top stand-up comics in the country, and he's a Navy veteran. Thank yeah. you for your service. Thank you. You're welcome. Beautiful wife, Kenya. I have sex with her. Boom. Kids, Kennedy, Austin, and Emilio. Three. And a little bitty-ass dog. Daisy. Daisy. I, uh... I. Full disclosure, uh, we both live in Brentwood part of the time. Um, it's our vacation homes. And uh, I see that little-ass dog out there every once in a while with uh, Austin sometimes out there. And I just heard there's a turd on the carpet. Yeah. <laughs> Get home, man. That's his only responsibility is my, my son who's out of high school, still trying to figure life out. Because, you know, I think we when you grow up, it's that – turn 18, graduate high school, get out of the house. Uh, 
and I'm trying to break that cycle. I don't want to kick my kids out and they don't know what they want to do with their lives yet. So I'm give I'm literally giving him a year to figure it out. So I'm not trying to pressure him too much. He's not asking for money. He's got his own account because he's teaching kids how to play video games. Somehow he's got a PayPal account and he won't let me get the login. So <laughs> there could be some Walter White stuff happening from Breaking Bad. I keep looking for a I keep looking for a um an RV in the backfield behind our house. <laughs> well, he might do something where it's like, you know, he doesn't talk to anybody. So maybe it's like one of those things where I think was it uh, Goodfellas or something, the boss never talks directly to any of the guys. Yeah. So it's like three pe- three people removed. Could yeah, be one of those deals. Could be. We'll find out. So now you and I met because really because of COVID. Yeah. It shut you down, shut down your whole industry. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you're like... I had to hang out in the neighborhood. Yeah. Who, who are these people? Right. <laughs> this is new. Since we... Okay, since me and Kenya's been together, one, two... This is the third neighborhood we've lived in where there's, there's neighbors around us, obviously. And uh, the last two, I didn't know anybody. There was never no get-togethers. We never went over neighbor's house like this. There was, I mean... We did have neighbors that we knew, and we saw them waved, and we're always nice to people, but to like, hey, let's go to Tahoe and hang out. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? We never had that before. Yeah. You know, because we always, I always say in my line of work, we don't have, we've never had travel friends that we're comfortable enough to go to even like entertain the idea of going to like Hawaii or going to, I don't know, <clears throat> Europe or anything like that. This is the only neighborhood we've lived in where it's like, okay, I can, I can hang out with them for a week. Yeah. Like in uh, a hotel. A couple days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to always be together. <laughs> so um, speaking of that, you are at a level where you can still go out and perform. It's got to be hell on people who are just coming up this whole COVID thing for guys that are just starting off in the business. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel bad. That, well, there's certain states, like Texas is, is open a little bit. Florida's open. Uh, but if you're just starting out, or if you're in your first couple of years and you don't have a lot of credits and you're not selling tickets, it's uh, yeah, it'd be a difficult time. But we are in a, an age of stand-up where more than any other time, you can create your own narrative. Like You have a network, which we call YouTube, that you can make it into your own whatever you want and you don't have any like um there's no chiefs in the um and the there's no but there's not a bunch of uh bosses in the kitchen it's all you can just cook up whatever you want and put it on youtube it sticks it sticks sometimes it don't you know what i'm mean? going tiktok i'm going tiktok i actually it was funny like i was um i was fighting for this movie part about two years ago and i didn't get it but the studio that did the movie, they weren't that familiar with me. And then during COVID, the the guy of this studio got wind of me through TikTok. I started putting all my stand-up videos on TikTok. So he asked for a meeting. So we did a Zoom meeting. And he's sitting there telling me, yeah, I got, I didn't really know who you were till this break. And my kids were watching you on TikTok. And I started watching your stuff. And I said, man, I got, I got to meet this dude. So we had a meeting. And I was like, it's so weird how... This whole business goes full circle. 
when I was fighting for this movie part that I didn't get, uh, he probably didn't have any clue who I was. And now two years later, he got win because of COVID. He had time to like take a step back and start watching videos. And so what do you what, what what's on your kid's phone and stuff like that? Well, I had you know? no clue what TikTok was until like maybe two years ago or something like that. Because like the neighborhood kids are like doing their little dances and stuff and putting it on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And now you know with this podcast and shit. People are like, well, you got to go to TikTok. I'm like, all right, well, you do that because I have no clue what the hell's yeah. going on on it. But it's like, that's like the biggest thing right now. Well, the new thing now is Clubhouse. You heard of that? No. That's the new thing. God damn it. You got to get on Clubhouse, John. There's there's deals getting made on Clubhouse. All it is, it's, um, it's an app and everyone's logging in now and you got these different rooms. You can create your own room about whatever you want to talk about. So whatever your line of work is, you could put it up there and other people will see it and they'll log in. And there's people like me, I, I go to all the comedy rooms and, and stuff like that. And I, I'll go to like sports rooms and people are talking about the Bengals or talking about the Vikings or whatever you want to talk about. But it's it's the new thing. So you might want to get on board. All right, that. fine. All right. Now you talked about at the beginning there, like we're getting ready to dive into some deep stuff here because this is a true ambition podcast. And uh, we talk about how you got where you're at, what your true ambition is now. Now, everybody who knows you knows that you grew up in a trailer park. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up around the corner from the trailer park in Mount Carroll, Illinois. And we used to play hide and seek all the time at the trailer park because there was hedges all over the place and stuff. You know, so I wasn't too far away from it. But uh, talk about where you grew up and how you grew up. Well, we moved into the trailer park when I was 10. So before that, uh, I don't know, me and my mom was all over the place, sticking to moving. Then we get into a, the trailer park, and the plan was she married this guy, who she's still married to to this day, and he said, we're going to get this trailer and move it down to Cocoa Beach, Florida, and we're, he's going to start a sign painting company with his uncle. The uncle dies. So we're just stuck in the trailer, which I don't think we would have moved to Cocoa Beach anyways. And it just stayed there. And he didn't have enough drive or business savvy or whatever to to start his own sign company, I guess. So we just kind of stuck there in the trailer park. And I was like, I just remember growing up, I had my own room with these big bay windows in front of the room. And I, I we didn't have sidewalks in the trailer park, but everyone would just kind of hang out in the streets like literally guys would come to my door and goes hey is gary here want to go walking and we just walk around the trailer park solving world's problems you know what i mean no we, we went a lottery we went a lottery I, I had i had guys up the street from me in there was one guy joe grislak that lived right between my house and the trailer park and then we had all these guys that lived in the trailer park we had to have all the guys in the trailer park so we play football you know so we get all the guys up there joe was the guy because he had a three-wheeler he had an above ground pool. He had all the stuff that you want to do. Oh yeah, Joe's house. Joe was, was Elon Musk <laughs> from Mount Carroll. <laughs> so and we'd go up there and uh, hang out and play all day long. We just had a freaking blast. I'd go to Scott's house. Hey, Scott, home want to go walking? That was pretty much me. Yeah, you got excited when kids knocked on your door. Oh yeah, hey, well, it was either they want to fight or go walking. <laughs> Come out here. <laughs> Let's go walk fighting. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I just remember sitting in front of them bay windows and I would get grounded. Man, they would my mom and the guy she's married to would they my groundings were like this enormous amount of time. It wasn't a week, it'd be like eight weeks. <laughs> and I'd just be like, like <laughs> I'd be like, God, and I was so afraid to ask, am I ungrounded yet? And I would just wait. Two more weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then I would just sit. But I used to sit in front of this bay window and just watch everything go down at night because we had a bar in front of the trailer park. And so all the, the guys over 21 would just hang out at this bar. Then they'd always walk back Fridays and Saturday nights drunk. And you don't know what would happen. You see fights. You see affairs. You see everything. The funniest was this one. So this guy moves in. He's dating this girl. And she, the rumor is in the neighborhood she's sleeping with another guy in the trailer park. So he goes to the bar and he's coming down and I could see him coming and like three people yelled, he's coming. Well, let's just say David, David's coming. He's coming. He had these cowboy boots on and like one of the guys in the neighborhood tried to distract him, like stall so the other guy could get out of the trailer. <laughs> so he was in close enough range that he could see his trailer. So my bay window, I could see like the it was it was right next door to me. I could see the trailer. This guy came barreling out of the window, like out of a movie, and draws with his clothes. And the girl's throwing the clothes out to him, right? <laughs> so he grabs it and he runs away. And I just remember the let's just say the guy David. He sees the guy he go, and the one guy's trying to distract him. He goes, "Hey, partner!" and put his hands on. His, he goes, "Draw." <laughs> he was a cowboy. <laughs> So then the girl comes walking out of the trailer. She got her robe on and house slippers. And she runs up. She goes, hey, baby. Hey. Goes, How you doing, baby? And they go in the trailer. And somehow, something must have got left. Because then the shit hit the fan. Uh-oh. And then he comes out. And he goes, you know, where's he at? I'm going to kick his ass. Where's he at? <laughs> and then she... She's walking the streets going, we were just talking. People can't talk anymore. We're just talking. <laughs> and then this whole, then here comes my, my stepdad come running out of the trailer. And it's just a big chaos trying to get to this dude who lived in the trailer park. But now he's on the other side. So I don't, everybody went over there to go confront him. But everybody knew he was sleeping with her. I was like this. Well, she was a cat. <laughs> I never knew what happened. I never knew if the fight happened that night or not. They're fighting for her. So when you were growing up in that situation, what did you dream of being when you were a kid? I'll tell you what I did. Want to be a garbage man? Because those guys rode in the back of the garbage truck. That looked fun as shit. Fireman. Wanted to be a fireman. I guess I just wanted to ride on trucks. Yeah. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Comedian. Wow. From what age? Birth. Really? It's the only thing I wanted to do. There's a... my. My sixth grade gym teacher, who still I'm friends with today, name's Mel Edwards. He ended up being my high school football coach. Um, sixth grade, first day of school, I'm talking while he's talking. He goes, he goes, hey, I'm, I'm talking. What do you want to be, a comedian or something? Trying to be a comedian? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he said to this day, he goes, your eyes lit up so much. He had to backtrack. He goes, well, well not in my class. <laughs> and I would... Literally, John, I'm not lying. I would tell girls, and I, this this sounds cocky, but whatever. Um, there was a my high school quarterback. His name was Wentz Morris. He's a really good athlete. He went to end up going to Miami of Ohio and being the quarterback. 
he goes, I remember my senior year, which was his junior year. Um, we're in somebody's house, some house party. We're in the backyard. And this girl goes, hey, Wentz, when, um, when you get out of college, you go to the NFL and you're going to be big and famous, you going to forget about us? I said, what are you talking to him for? I'm the one that's going to be big and famous. <laughs> <laughs> the girl just looked at me. I was like, what? And then two different times I ran away from home. One of the times, me and my buddy, it was my junior high school, we got in his car and we drove down to the bus station in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we stopped at Kroger's, which is a grocery store, and I got goober grape, so you can mix the peanut butter and jelly together, a loaf of bread, and I had a thermos, and I had my backpack, and I said, I'm going to go to L.A. I'm going to ride the bus in L.A. I'll make it. I'm funny enough, Derek. I'll make it. And Derek's hyped me up. Derek Callahan's name. He goes, yeah, man, you're funny, man. I said, I'm going to make it, man. I'll make it. I'm crying in the car. I'm going to make it, man. I'm too funny, man. I'm, I'm not happy with my home life, so I'm going off on everybody at my, in my trailer. And then um, we got on the bus station. We had like 13 bucks between us. And then I didn't have an ID. So I was like this. Oh, this, this travel's a little harder than I thought. I never think this. <laughs> but the plan was to get on the bus to go to L.A., and I'll just eat peanut butter and jelly the ride out there. So you had the goober grape where it's mixed together? Yeah. So I had the peanut <laughs> butter and the, the jelly. Best. Yeah. And I You're had thinking the ahead. loaf of bread. I don't want two jars. No, that's too much. <laughs> I was like this. I'll just eat it on the way out there, man. I'll eat a sandwich a day. In my mind, it was going to take three months to get there. On the bus. <laughs> what, is, what is it right now? February? We'll be there by April. <laughs> <laughs> so who was, who, when you were a kid... Who who were your idols as far as uh, stand-ups? Well, obviously Eddie Murphy. Um, and then one was Sam Kinison because now that I'm you know, I'm I'm a I'm a f I'm doing good as a stand-up, but I'm I'm what I call black famous. Like I'm I don't think there's ever been a comic that has has like a white guy that is like dang near A list with black people and damn near anonymous with white people. And I don't think there's ever been a comic like that in the history of comedy. I've experienced it. You and I were at Harris up in Tahoe, mm -hmm. and we walked past pretty much every white person in there, and nobody. Every once in a while, somebody's like, "I know that guy from. Is that my cousin?" Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> then we walk past a black girl, and she starts crying. Yeah, and she goes. There he is. That's him. That's him. <laughs> you know, and she had a couple drinks in her, but I mean, she was crying, you know, just, just mm. to get a chance to meet you. Uh -huh. And, uh, it was, it was, it was, uh, eye opening for me, you know, yeah. to, to see that it was crazy. Yeah. Um, but you know, all the black comics I talk to, cause that's usually who are my contemporaries when I'm on the road and doing tours with, they all talk about how they used to listen to Richard Pryor albums in the basement. Or everybody watched Eddie Murphy. For me growing up, in my age group, we used to listen to Sam Kinison cassette tapes. And we were always dumbfounded. We'd be driving around in high school, like, I can't believe you said that about God. <laughs> oh, that was one of my favorite bits of Sam Kinison. Right. And then we were like this, oh my God. He's got the 12 losers out there following him around. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this guy's incredible. <laughs> like, we were just dumbfounded, like, play it again, play it again. Yeah. And then, you know, we, we'd be at baseball practice or Fulbright, and we'd be quoting Sam Kinison all day at practice. You know what I mean? So, probably growing up, it was Eddie Murphy and Sam Kinison was the two that I thought was I could I could literally quote every joke growing up from them. Kinison was huge. You know, I graduated in 1990 from high school 
And, I mean, he, he could do no wrong there for a few years. And it was so much fun to watch everything he did. You know, except for when he was uh, self-destructing. Yeah. But he didn't really didn't give a shit. It's always good to see those comics that are doing stuff nobody's done before. You know, and then I was watching documentary and even Jim Carrey brought up. He was, they, he would, the other comics would be like, there's a guy that's doing stuff I've never seen done before. You got to check this guy out. Because literally I, I, I heard stories about him being at the comedy store and this before cell phones, bringing up the phone, the comedy store phone on the stage. And when anybody, anybody get dumped lately and would call, have a guy call the girl and then Sam would be like, you cut and start cussing <laughs> her out. And they're like, this, what is going on? <laughs> Just going nuts on her on the phone. I was like, man, I wish I was there to see that. Well, wasn't, I mean, isn't his backstory, wasn't he like a preacher or something? Yeah. Yep. Oh, Crazy, man. right? Yeah, because that, that one bit that he had about uh, Jesus and then, you know, when Mary's pregnant and Joseph's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, a, a, a ghost came in here and I got pregnant. He goes, what? I wish they could, I wish they would, Um, as far as HBO or some of these streaming services, I wish they would just pull some of those out of the vault. And re re release those classic standups like um like they never came out because there's a whole group of people right but you probably couldn't we're in this cancel culture and millennials they 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 want to get offended on social media most millennials are cool per, face to face it's those social media keyboard millennials that are giving millennials a bad name I'll say well that's one <laughs> of the questions I had for you in this quote unquote cancel culture I knew that John you I mean ask that. you got you got freaking, they find something you did 10 years ago or something you said. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, you're, you're done. Like, what? They act like you're done, but you're not. I've, I've learned that. Social media, because I've been canceled about 20 times. And it does, I, I still sell out. <laughs> I'm like this, oh, that didn't, that didn't hurt my ticket sales. <laughs> <laughs> but what I found is those, those, you know, I watched, one, I watched that, uh, that show on Netflix, Social Dilemma. So they tell you how, there's literally bots and they're just people that that's all they do is to get a rise and get a reaction. And there's these algorithms and they just, they just want to know I'm, I went viral because of this. But a lot of those people always say they were never going to pay to see me anyways. Right. So I don't, I don't only really care about your opinion. Now, if you come to see me live, you paid your money to come see me. And you send me a message on social media, whatever outlet, whether it's a Facebook message, a DM on Instagram, or a tweet or whatever, I'll engage that person because I'll be like, okay, what didn't you like? And I'll explain where I was coming from. And I've had a lot of good back and forth with people that came to my shows. Um, even one guy, I remember him telling me he didn't appreciate something I said on stage. And we instead of attacking him, saying, you know what you're talking about, I asked him, well, what was that? And he, we got a good back and forth dialogue. And then at the end, he basically said, I still don't appreciate what you said. That that little bit. I'm on stage over an hour, but there's three minutes that he didn't appreciate. But he said, but you know I'm always going to support you and come see you regardless and bring my family and friends. So it didn't, it didn't like turn into, well, screw you then. You've lost a fan and everything. It turned into... I know that guy's going to come see me next time and probably bring friends just because I was like, well, I see where you're coming from. You know, it was adults basically, but it's his opinion mattered because he paid to see me thinking while you're talking about that. So I own an IT staffing company and we have, pro, you know, 
I deal with people. So my contractors work at all these different client sites. Shit goes wrong. You know, a guy won't show up for work or quits or whatever it is. If you, if I and my company go in and hit the problem straight on and take care of the problem, then I've got a client for life. Even though one of the people that were my employee caused the problem, mm-hmm. if you take care of the problem and hit, hit it head on, instead of trying to run away from it, it takes care of everything. Facts. So I, I was just thinking about that while you're talking, because it's, all, it's a completely different industry, but almost the same thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So the whole cancel culture thing is just like almost laughable to me because it's just like find out something that did 10 20 years ago that somebody did 10 or 20 years ago and they go i can't believe you said that i'm like really did you live 10 or 20 years ago everybody said that kind of shit did you see um did you see Chappelle's speech at the kennedy honors i don't know if it did or not he hit it he hit the nail on the head he hits the nail on the head a lot of times he's brilliant but um he said uh instead of getting upset and angry at a comedian saying something that you don't like or don't agree with. He said, I guarantee you there's a comedian that is a champion for causes that are important to you and support that guy. Whether it's, whether you're, so if you're a Trump supporter and there's a comic out there that's pro Trump, support him instead of getting mad at a comic that's anti-Trump. You know what I mean? Right. It's the same with with anything, any 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 line of work. If you um, if you're gay, find a gay comic. They're out there and support that person instead of getting mad at somebody making fun of gay people. You get my thing is with comedy. You can I I, I think we're offensive proof. I don't get offended by anything. There's right. nothing you can say to me that's going to offend me. And what I what I think is um, you just uh. I completely lost my train of thought. I'm sorry, John. The cigar <laughs> got to my head. Well, I, 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 I was about I, to say something so profound. I it screw was, myself. It was so profound Yo. that it's gone. Yo, <laughs> what? I tell you? <laughs> I'm going to tell it to you in Belgium. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, my whole thing is like it's called freedom of speech. You can say whatever the hell you want to. You know, just uh, like you said before, if you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it. Walk mm-hmm. away. You know, do something else. But it's like mm-hmm. just just hearing something, and all of a sudden, well, that person's done. It's garbage to me. Well, the problem with stand up right now is uh, the reason we're we're I think most big headliners are sticklers like no phones, no pictures, no videos, because sometimes we we have a thought in our head, and then we do it on stage, and it might not be the finished product, and it might. You know, we're working it out. I, I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should say that. But somebody puts it, gets it on their phone, posts it on YouTube or any social media, and then you got people attacking this person for doing a joke like it wasn't the finished product. Right. That was just it was a thought I had. It's not like who I am as a person. It's just a joke. Like oh, that'd be funny. And art. Honestly, I think most people go to comedy clubs because they want to hear shit that's uncomfortable. And dark humor is the best humor to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. Listen, when I die, if people aren't roasting me at my funeral, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> I don't know if I can do anything about it, but I want to get roasted at my funeral. Bring up all my flaws. 
Well, the other thing I heard was, uh, you know, when uh, I write the check for my funeral, I want it to bounce. <laughs> uh, I love that. <laughs> you know? Do you, do you want to live rich or die rich? You know, it's like I've been listening to all this stuff lately. So you dreamed about being a comic from the time you were a kid. Talk about how you got into the Navy. It was my senior year of high school. And in my brain, I was going to be a comedian. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I knew I was going to do it. And my buddy, uh, his name was Michael Heineman. He's still one of my best friends of this day. He's the guy's house I ran away to when I would run away. Uh, him and his dad, to this day, I don't know how they got in the trailer. It was Saturday morning. I'm asleep. All I look up, Mike's shaking me. Get, get up, get up, get up. And his dad's in the car. And I go, huh? He goes, come on, man. I got to get you out of here. I go, what are you doing? He goes, what are you doing after high school? I go, I don't know. He goes, I, you got to get out of here, man. He takes me down to the um, recruiting station. He had already joined. So he takes me down to the recruiting station. Um, I, I met with the Marines, the Army, and the Navy because they were all right next to each other. So that same day, I, I walked into all three recruiting offices that Saturday morning. And then for some reason, the Air Force and the Coast Guard wasn't there. Or I would have went into everybody's. Knew I didn't want to join the Marines. I said, that's too dangerous. <laughs> the Army, I was like, ah. He, the Army recruiter laid it on so thick. I go, oh, he's full of shit. He made the Army sound like it was, it was Bora Bora. It was amazing. <laughs> this going to be so much stuff. fun. Well, I did a joke about like, he goes, so what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm on the wrestling team. He goes, you wrestle? And then he told me like I could join the Army wrestling team. I said, dude, I'm awful like i'm i'm really bad and i hate wrestling the only reason i wrestled is my friends wrestled and i just want to hang out with them i i used to pin myself john <laughs> like guys i mean we get if you got to the second period with me you're awful because i'm like i'm trying to put my shoulders on the back i had one guy he was fighting me I, i'm like in his ear like i'm trying to help you <laughs> tell your mom get her camera out this is gonna be a proud moment <laughs> i was i I swear I have to be in 20, at least 20 shots of guys that are probably probably gloating over their greatest wrestling victory, and I'm probably right there. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's amazing. But uh, the Navy guy would just, they were straight up with me. So I was like, oh, and my buddy had joined. So I go, and then I was thinking like, you know, I had a, my, grand, my grandfather's in the Navy, my my biological father's in the Navy. I was like this, you know, okay. I was thinking I'd be a cool legacy. And they, and they, they had jobs I wanted. So I was like, all right, I could do this while I'm figuring out how to get to California. The whole goal was to get to California and do stand up, but I just didn't know how I was going to get there. And I was like, wait a minute, Navy got a lot of big bases in California. So I joined the Navy. Um, I graduated high school in June. I was in the Navy in July. And then the first two years I was in a presidential honor guard. So we spun rifles and marched in all the parades. Like I did the Clinton's inauguration parade, a um, bunch of funerals at Arlington and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then I went to the police academy after I got done with two years in the honor guard. Um, I went to police academy, went to school in San Antonio, got stationed in San Diego. Cause I was like, in my brain, California was LA. I didn't know there was different cities. Me too. Well, you, you Look, David Lee Roth, I wish y'all could be California girls. I right. looked at the video and I go, oh, that's California. Yeah. It's just one long beach. <laughs> and then the Boys in the Hood came out. I go, there is a bad part. <laughs> <laughs> so in my brain, California was beach, gangs, 
that was it. I didn't know there was Mexicans here. <laughs> I was like this. It's just beaches and gangs. There's like two. Yeah. <laughs> but so I, 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 I got out to San Diego. Um, and the first day I get to San Diego, um, Mike Heineman, the guy I joined with, he's already been stationed out here. So I call him up. I said, yo, I'm driving. I'm driving. I drove my Oldsmobile Cutlass that I saved up all my money my first years in the Navy to get. And I drive it out to San Diego. He says, well, stay with me for a week. So I stay out here for a week with him. And then I said, dude, can I just, he had an extra room. I said, I can move in, man. We can split the rent. He was like, all right. Now he's my roommate. My best friend from high school is now my roommate. And uh, my first day in San Diego, I got in a phone book and started looking for stand-up comedy clubs. And then it took about a couple weeks so I can get on stage. And that, the first time I ever officially got on stage was at the La Jolla Comedy Store, probably two weeks after I got to San Diego. And I got basically heckled off. And it took another year for me to get the nerve to go back on stage after that. So that first time was horrible? Pretty bad because it was open mic uh, Sunday night. And my brain, I was about to be discovered. I thought I'm gonna get on stage and be like, "Where's this guy been the whole time? Where's lives? he been hiding? This guy is the biggest natural on the planet. <laughs> like I'm dressed up. I was in this, like a suit, and I was like, "This, I'm ready to go." And I got there, and all these open micers like in jeans and cutoffs, and I was like, "Oh, I think I overdressed." <laughs> and then um, I I get on stage. There's like ten people in the audience, but about twenty comics in the back, and a comic started heckling me. And when I say heckle, I don't mean like interrupting. Comics have a way of doing this laugh called, ha! <laughs> that's what you know. Like, that's almost like a sarcastic comic laugh. We do that laugh when you're bombing because you're, you're letting them know. But it's almost like you're trying. So we're giving you like, ha! So I was getting that, and they were cutting off my jokes, though. So I couldn't get through a joke. And I had this five minutes that I've been working on my entire life. This is going to set it off. Right. And I couldn't get through a whole setup punchline because I'm like, oh, these guys are messing me up. And then the crowd's not, there's only 10 people. They're not laughing. Yeah. So I'm like, oh. So I had a beer in my hand and I said, hey, all you comics in the back, keep heckling. I'm 20 years old. I've been drinking this club all night. Why don't I call the cops and shut this motherfucker down? <laughs> <laughs> when I say the mic cut off, the lights cut off, a bouncer, it was that picked me up by the back of my collar. And literally another guy grabbed me and my feet are barely touching the ground. They threw me out the front door where I did a front roll. I was like, doo, 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 and, I, and then this guy named Fred, he actually won $100,000. He was a grand prize winner on America's Funniest Home Videos the first season. Yeah. So like 93 or something. He had these crutches. So he was like, he was a disabled dude. And I just remember he came out and got these two bouncers looking at me. And he comes out like this. And the goes like, don't ever come back again. He was the manager. <laughs> and then he just came crippling back in, right? And I go, what was that? I'm dusting myself off. I go, and I remember leaving there going, God damn it. I think I got to work a nine to five the rest of my life. It was, the, it was the most like depressing feeling I've had. And then I... Go back to the Navy ship the next day I'm on. And a couple of the brothers that I worked with is like, what happened last night? I go, man, I told them the whole story. And then they're still, we're still talking about doing stand up. And then as time went on, they start telling me, hey man, there's other rooms. So the black guys on my Navy in the Navy, I was in the Navy with, they start telling me about all these quote unquote hood rooms I could go to. A lot of the white comics don't want to go to those rooms. So I said, I'll go. I just want to tell jokes. So then that's where I really start cutting my teeth and getting stage time was the quote unquote hood spots in San Diego. And then just kind of took off from there. 
start getting back on stage. And I ended up getting back in good graces with the comedy store. After a year, I came back and apologized, told Fred my story, like, yo, I was just, you know, I was getting heckled and I, I didn't have any material, but I've really been working on my act and I'd really, I'm, I'm sorry I did that, but I'm 21 now. I was going to say, and I'm 21. Yeah, I'm 21 now. <laughs> and um, I'd really like to, you know, get a shot at being a regular here if I could. And then he said, all right, come back Sunday, open mic, I'll give you five minutes. So I did my five minutes and I remember I got off the stage and it was a good five minutes and Fred was, he goes, funny shit, Gary. And then I got a call the next day going, all right, you're a regular at the comedy store in La Jolla. So that's where I, I've kind of had my little home club that I could get up a couple times a week. And then if a big headliner came in, um, sometimes locals would get to do five minutes before them. Or you, at least uh, my big thing was I got to go see them perform. Like I, I knew everybody there now so I could, if like a Dice Clay came in town, if a Chris Rock came in town, I could sit in the back and watch them. Just being all like, how are they doing that for an hour? Because I was getting up to like 10, 15 minutes now. I was like, I'm good. Whoa, guy's up there for an hour. Well, five or 10 minutes by yourself has to be a lifetime when you start. Like, you know my background. I, I sing with bands. I play mm-hmm. drums in bands. You have four or five other people on stage with you. So it's like you can bomb, but you're bombing with other people. Whole different deal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, I've always talked about going up and trying just an open mic night somewhere for three or four minutes just to see what it's like because it sounds like it's terrifying. You really? Know? <laughs> oh, I, I, I've, always, I've, I've talked to people about it before. It's like I just like to experience what that's like because it has to, I mean, just standing there for three to five minutes has to be like an eternity. When you're first starting? When you're first starting. It's, a, it's, almost, it's crazy. Like when you're first starting – if you're not doing well, the crowd's flat, which happens like when you first start doing stand up, it's different now because people are they're paying money to see me. So there's a level of expectation and they're also there to have a good time. Like they're already fans. Yeah. When you first start out, that's when you get hecklers. That's when you get crowds that aren't paying attention because a lot of people are coming in for free. You're doing bars. Like I did everything. I used to do I used to do on it was Wednesday or Tuesday. I think it was Wednesday night in San Diego. There was a place called El Torito, a Mexican restaurant, but they had karaoke night. I would go to stand-up because there was a microphone and a stage. So people got to know, oh, that's the funny dude. He ain't, he ain't singing. He going to tell jokes. So they had like a time slot for me now. Like it got to the point where like at 10 o'clock, I would go up. No matter what the lineup was for the karaoke, from 10 to like 10, 10, I got to go up. And I got to know the the guy that was doing the karaoke and everything else. So I just, you know, those karaoke nights, sometimes I was just me dealing with hecklers, but it was fun. So I got that. And you're learning. Yeah, I'm getting getting comfortable on stage. I'm cutting my teeth. I was like, oh, I'm I'm pretty good at this Jones and stuff. And then, uh, but then once you start getting established, you don't get, because people always ask, how do you deal with hecklers? I go, you don't get them that much the bigger you get. Because people are coming to watch you and they already like you. In the beginning, though, man, you don't know what you're walking into. Like biker bars, everything. I just want to go on stage. Like I used to, I miss those days though in San Diego where you would just go and you'd hit three, four different clubs a night, and you and you're riding around with your comedian buddies, and you're all talking about, man, that last crowd, what the fuck? There was um, <laughs> there was one night in Pacific Beach, and San Diego, there was four people at this bar, and. When I got on stage, two of them left. It's these two guys 
at this high top bar table, and they, they're probably 21. When I tell you, it's still one of my favorite shows of my life because me and these two guys were having a ball, and I was doing my act. They were laughing so hard. Hats was off. They was hitting each other. <laughs> they were lit. They became like my local fans. So if I had a show, and they found out, they were there. And then they started bringing friends. It got to the point where I could always count on them for like six, seven people. Every time I had a decent show. Because you, back then, you you run if you had a show where you were trying to make a little money, you'd have flyers and you'd run around town and give people flyers and put them on cars. Those two dudes got wind of it. They was there. You remember those two guys' names? I don't. I never really met them. They were just always there. Because I was always on stage and I'd get on stage, I'd see them. But when I, when I talk about loyal... Look, and granted, most of my shows were free back then, so they were just like, yeah, oh, this dude. No, we, uh, it, it reminds me of, you know, I was a big fish in a small pond on these bands that I played back in the Midwest. Clinton, Iowa, Davenport, different places around there. Slow down, John. It's big. Slow it's down. Big. Clinton, Iowa. Woo! Yeah. So, <laughs> the groupies but, there must have been amazing. And Clinton, hey, Iowa. <laughs> for John Zink from Mount Carroll, Illinois, it was okay. <laughs> so... Uh, we we'd go and we we'd play at these different places. You'd start on uh, Sunday night. No, no, you start on a Monday, and you'd have seven days in a row. You'd play. The band would play every night of the week, and you'd have different people that would show up every night of the week to see you play. And if you're playing on a Monday night, there might be 15 people. Play on Friday and Saturday night, you got a few hundred people. Right. And then you'd have to end on Sunday night. Playing to fifteen people again, it was just—it was ridiculous. But it just took me back there to the the loyalty of those people, and how I can only imagine it just like grows your um, grows your um, fan base, and it makes you see that if you just keep on doing this, it'll just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow from there. If you stay loyal to those people. Imagine like, just think about this. Like, imagine like um, you just were in Minnesota and saw Prince at 18 years old at some bar. Imagine that story. Like, most people wouldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. Like, but they're, it's so funny when people reach out to me and say they saw me like in 98. You know what I mean? Like, dude, I, you can, or, or you came to my college and performed in the cafeteria. <laughs> it's like, what? And I, I, you remember those shows, they jar your memory, and you're like, whoa. I remember, like, your expectations are so low when you first start doing stand-up. Like, the Red Roof Inn was the Ritz. Like, <laughs> I remember going to one city, and the promoter had me and the other comic in the same room. And I had to call him, like, dude, this, this ain't no slumber party, bro. I, <laughs> I need my own room. And this is when I had... My, my first manager is hysterical. He's not even in the business anymore. I'm not going to name his name and throw him under the bus. But the first manager I ever had in stand-up, a uh, couple things should have led me to believe maybe he was in over his head. He books me at this place called the Brass Ring in Kansas City, Missouri. $500 all in. So I had to get myself there. The promoter was going to pick me up from the airport and get me a hotel room. It was $500, but I got to get myself there, right? And I, I brought my opener because he goes, you know, opener, my opener would just want to go. So he flew on a buddy pass, and the only thing we asked the promoter was, you know, get his own hotel room. So we get there. He got us both in the same hotel room. And it's like a La Quinta. It ain't nothing fancy. And I had to call him, like, yo, um, 
I called my manager. I said, he got us both in the same room. Your manager's job is to fix that. My manager goes, let me call him. My manager calls me back. He goes, that guy's crazy. Just get out of there. And I go, I'm in, I'm here. I'm in Kansas City. I can't just leave. He goes, well, he's not trying to switch it. I went, <laughs> so we get to the show, right? This is how I got him to switch rooms. This, this is how I got him because he was like, Lot, there's been quite a few shows where I, it's clearly it's a drug dealer cleaning his money through comedy shows. And this was one of those shows. This guy was clearly dirty. A lot of cash was getting exchanged. And he was clearly just trying to flip his drug money. So when, I, when I, I'm vibing and I'm figuring it out, I go, oh, okay, I see what he's doing. So I said, let me just pull him aside. I said, hey, man, listen, um, I got some hoes here. I can't bring him back and the dude's in the room. So, you know, you know how it is, man. I can't have no dude. I'm trying to knock these girls. I have no idea what these mythical girls are. <laughs> I'm just telling them, right? He goes, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, man. That's real. That's real. I said, so, you know, I can't have my boy in the room with me. That's weird. And, you know, he goes, all right, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get your boy in another room. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that I just went to, like, his level, like, oh, I got some hoes, man. I can't you know. He was like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told my opener, I go, you're good, man. Got your own room. <laughs> La Quinta. Yeah. I got, he, he splurged on the $89. I've got a favorite story that I'm hoping that you'll tell everybody today. You were in the Navy, and there was one of your guys. You guys were at a convenience store, I think, and you were inside. Yeah. Yeah, Joe East. Okay, so can you tell the story about Joe East? Because it's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the night of uh, the George Foreman-Michael Moore fight where George Foreman knocked Michael Moore out and regained the heavyweight title. That's why I, that's why I, I, I cannot forget this night. So I, I lived in the barracks half the time or I would live on my own, but we never had like cable, you know, but Joe was married, had a couple kids. If he was older than me, he had cable. So he would get all the fights and... So I said, hey, it's Saturday night. I said, hey, you getting the fight? He goes, yeah, yeah. So I come over to his house to get the fight. We go to the 7-Eleven for the fight. We're getting like beer and snacks. And it was one of those Navy guys were weird. When you didn't have a big bash, you brought your own snacks. You brought your own liquor because we right. don't make a lot of money. He's buying stuff. I'm buying stuff. So he's already checked out. He's in front of the 7-Eleven. Now I'm buying myself at the 7-Eleven. I look out the door. And Joe's a big dude from Louisiana backwoods, had a thick accent. He, he's just not a guy you cross, right? And these three... So how big? How, like six? Six four. Yeah. And thick. Yeah. Like a big dude. And muscles, though. Not ripped, but just thick. Big right? dude. And I look out there, and he's, there's these, like... It was three or four black kids that are around him. And I thought they knew him by the way they was talking to him. I'm looking at him, and they're sitting there. So Joe's got, like, this bag's got the beer. This bag's got the snacks. Joe drops his bags and starts doing this with his arms. I'm like, what's he doing? <laughs> and then the kids are looking at each other, and then they just walk away. And I go, that was weird. So I walk out, and I, now I got my alcohol and snacks. I go, who's that? Are your neighbors or something? He goes, nah. Because I walked outside. Those four guys surrounded me. I was like, give us your shit or we're going to fuck you up. So Joe said, start fucking motherfuckers. <laughs> start this. And I go, what? <laughs> Here I am, his homeboy, thinking, oh, he knows these guys. Right. You know, my naive ass. Yeah. I was like, oh, they were trying to jump you? 
And he goes, the one kid goes, he's packing, man. He's got to be packing. Nobody's that bold. <laughs> but if you knew Joe, that's Joe. He would have fought him. No doubt. And probably won. I did, that was one dude. He was, uh, he was on the base and we were both cops on the base. I loved it when I rode with Joe because I knew I was safe. And I knew we'd be laughing all night. You know what I mean? Even the way he dealt with people when he pulled them over. It just, it just was funny, man. Oh, yeah. funny. He could have he been a... He could have been in the business. He was that funny. And he ended up being a lifer. I found him on Facebook. Oh, still, lifer Navy? Yeah, he ended up going for 20. And it's so weird when you start out and you know guys when they're immature and in their early 20s. And then you find out they end up being like a warrant officer, lieutenant, or they're, or they're the, the, the command master chief. You're like, that guy? <laughs> I wouldn't trust that guy. Did he have the real thick Louisiana accent? Thick. Cajun? That's why my story is... It's not as good because I don't have the accent. Yeah. If I had the accent, oh, the way he talked, I can't even do it. I can't even do the accent. Well, my wife's family, Carissa's family, is from Lafayette, Louisiana. And she's got a couple of, uh, I think they're cousins, that sound just like the coach from Waterboy. Yeah. And it, it's just, I'm like, what? And they're laughing and smiling the whole time. I'm just like. I have no idea what the fuck he just said, but it's hilarious. <laughs> you know? Baby. I already know this about you, but I'm going to ask it for the sake of the podcast. Are you a regimented person? What do you think? I'm ex-military. <laughs> I know you are. It's like, just had a, I just had a discussion with my wife when I got home. We shouldn't be homeowners. Let me put it that way. We should be <laughs> renting and having people take care of stuff for us because we don't know how to fix things. Thank God we got people in the neighborhood that know how to fix things. Kevin. Exactly. Uh, and amongst other people, Don Donzales, yeah, dude. And um, even today, I got home and like like six seven weeks ago, I completely covered our backyard, all the outdoor furniture, got everything together. The one thing I could not do was this picnic table with these green apples that my wife has that you've you've had sex with. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> so I come home. So six seven weeks ago, when I did it. I said, I, I couldn't do the table because you got your stuff on there, so I just get that done, please. She goes, okay, when you get back, it'll be done. I got back two weeks later, wasn't done. Went on the road again, came back a week later, wasn't done. Now, I just got back today, I go, hey, the backyard still isn't done. And Kenny goes, my wife goes, well, it was, uh, I went out there to do it, and it was raining, so the tarp was wet, so I had to turn over if you knew that. So I said... So why, why is the apple still on the table? And she's like, what do you mean? She goes, you, we don't cover up the apples. We put those up for the winter, right? She goes, yeah. I go, so why the apple's still on the table? <laughs> she goes, well, I couldn't cover it up, so I didn't know why I'd take the apples off. I go, because you're showing me that you're doing what I asked you to do. Because I'll, I'll, I'm getting better. I used to call her every day when things went. You, you, you do the table yet? You do the table yet? Hey, what are you doing? You do the table yet? And then now I was like, I let it go for all two weeks. When I came home, it wasn't done. I go, that's why I call every day and ask you about the table. So she just texts me during the podcast. She goes, table's done. But, but then she gave me the guilt trip like this. I'm just going to put it on with wet tarp then. I was like, that's fine. <laughs> as long as it gets done. So um, one of the things that I read was that uh, you had won Funniest Serviceman in America. Yeah. So is that... Is that something they have every year? It's a it's a it, title, but it's not a real accolade. 
because I don't think it was a worldwide search. It was probably West Coast military. Okay. Because the contest was on Camp Pendleton, which is the big Marine base outside of San Diego. And um, there was flyers all over the Navy bases. Funniest service in America contest. Funniest serviceman, right? And I was like, oh. So I remember I did it two years in a row. The first year I did it, I was just, I wasn't that experienced, but I clearly won. It was it was the biggest robbery since Roy Jones Jr. in the Olympics when he didn't win the gold medal or Evander Holyfield. It was so obvious I won. The crowd started booing when they announced the winner, and I was like, I was like, oh. Would somebody know somebody? I'll I'll get to that. So, uh, what what I found out about what happened was I was like, man, I I clearly had the best set, and I'm not. I mean, I think all comedians have a. We have an ego about us, but I'm not an arrogant ass. But if somebody was better, maybe I'd be like, okay, I can see how he won. This wasn't that case. It was like so far from because you know I was I was working. I'm like I'm on the road every night. Like I'm out there three doing like three spots a night, five six days a week. So I'm I'm an amateur, but I'm out there. The other comedians they were really military guys, just kind of winging it a little bit, right? So the just the stage presence and the, the, the level of jokes was like, it wasn't even close. And the fact that this guy won, I went. So the next year I came back and this, I'm talking a year later where I'm, I'm already like, I'm getting out of the Navy. I'm, I'm the dude in San Diego. So the next year they couldn't have taken it from me. It was, it was worse. It was like, um, how can I explain it? It was almost like maybe like Floyd Mayweather fighting like an amateur, right? It was like there was no doubt I was winning the next year, right? But I found out that the year before I was like, this is weird why I didn't win. That's why I came back and did it. It was almost like a proof. I'll thing. show you. The lady that organized it, that was the host. She was ex-military. She's a stand-up, and I guess. Somehow she got kind of threatened by me. Like, who's this guy coming in, you know, really ripping these rooms up and getting looks in L.A. Like, I was getting, like, calls to go up to L.A. and do stuff. So I think it was a little bit of, like, wait a minute, I'm the military chick. I'm the funny one. Because I found out later she started bad-mouthing me to promoters and stuff like that. So I had a buddy of mine call her and say, hey, man, act like you want to book me and ask her what I'm like to work with. So he said, hey, so I'm looking to book uh, Gary Owen. And this lady was like, um, I wouldn't work with him. Yeah, he's he's hard to work with. He says, like, she laid into me. And I was like, so at the end, my buddy goes, well, I'm his friend, but thanks. Gary's on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> and she just went, well, I'm getting out of stand-up anyway, so I don't really care. And hung up. And that's how she ended the phone call. And I was like, but she was... She was also one of the judges for that contest. She was hosting one of the judges. So I was like, she she had something to do with me not winning. Do I sound bitter? Even though it's been 25 years. <laughs> let, me, let me ask. Did, did she ever do anything? No. No. No, I don't even know what happened. Nobody that acts like that ever does anything. Right. And I was like, it was so weird. because I was like, so the next year, even though she was a judge and she was hosting again, that was like her deal. She was the judge of that contest because she's ex-military. I made sure there was no doubt. They, they they couldn't have. Yeah. They just couldn't. The year before, you know, maybe it wasn't a, the separation wasn't as much. But the only reason I went back because even my my P 
people at the time, my agent's like, why are you doing that? I go, this is personal. <laughs> this is personal. It has nothing to do with the $50 gift, gift certificate to Wendy's that I'm going to win. <laughs> double stack. <laughs> I got double stacks everywhere. <laughs> Triple stack. No, you don't understand. I'm getting a Mississippi mud pie from Black Angus <laughs> for free. I think that was the way. It was $50 at Black Angus was the first prize. I mean, the real question here, though, because we know a lot about restaurants. So how many pancakes are in a stack at, at Cracker Barrel? At Cracker Barrel. You can order however many you want. Oh, you can? Yeah. But if you want a full stack, that's three. All right, let me put that down. But Thank if you. you want, let me tell you something. I eat Cracker Barrel a lot. Okay. You can order half a pancake if you want. All right. You hear that, KC? You All right, anyway. Whatever you want. <laughs> no. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Cracker Barrel. So you said it before. Everybody knows about it. You have a huge African-American fan base. I'm a white guy. I laugh my ass off at your stuff. Hmm. Why has white America been so far behind on Gary Owen? Probably just exposure. Because, you know, my, my first two years on TV was BET. You're not watching black entertainment television. You're not going to know who I am. Right. Um, most of the movies I've been in had black lead actors. You didn't go see the movie. You don't know who I am. So is that just because of the places where you started out in San Diego? Like you said, they were like, when you say hood, um, part. And then when I got, even when I got to LA, um, how you become a paid regular at the comedy store. When I first got to LA, you have to wait in line. It's like a three hour wait. It's, it was either on Sunday or Monday, and you would see the line down the block outside the comedy store, and it's everybody signing up, hoping to get that. It's almost like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. You're hoping to get that one time where Mitzi Shore, who's Polly Shore's mom, ran a comedy store. She was the gatekeeper, so to speak. She would watch your set, and she would be like, okay, you are now a paid regular. Now you can call and get spots when you at the comedy store. I did that two, three times at least where I waited in that line and signed up, didn't get on, waited in line again, signed and get on. Finally do it. I, I wait in line and I'm doing other spots around LA. So comics are getting to know me, but I'm doing all the urban spots, the black nights. And, um, finally get on five of you get the showcase, right? You each get like four or five minutes. So I just, I never forget. It was four girls and me. I said, that's, that's odd. I, I went, you know, I thought that was different. That it was four because there's not a lot of female comics. So the fact that I'm showcasing with four female comics and myself, I go up. I was the fifth of everybody. When I got on stage, I looked. Comedy store, the original room is very small. I looked, and Mitzi has the four girls sitting around her, and she's talking to them. She never watched my set. And I'm there going, she didn't even watch my set. And then I call the next day, and they go, yeah, you didn't, you didn't, you're not a paid regular. And I went, what? And then I was like, huh. And then I was like, can you tell me why? And they go, nah, she just said no. I was like, and I said to myself, I will never. Tony Papp is in the house, everybody. Yeah. All right. And we'll be out in just a second. We're in here, right? Yeah. Okay. It's the problem when you have guys that own car dealerships. They yeah. feel like they can just walk into any room. It's the people from Vista Dorado. Let really. me tell you something. If you work at a car dealership, you knock. Right. If you own a dealership, you open the door. And that's just... If you're looking for a Hyundai in the Bay Area, yeah, look up a guy named Pappas. Yeah, Tony Pappas. If you're looking for a Rolls Royce, don't call him. Don't call him at all. <laughs> I don't even know who you call. But anyways, before I got really interrupted by the car owner, it was rude. my next door neighbor. 
I'm just going to go in his house tonight and open up his front door. Oh, sorry. We're here. Oops. <laughs> Merry He's Christmas. having sex with his yeah. wife. Merry Christmas. Congratulations. <laughs> I expect a little more, Tony. <laughs> so anyways, um, I said to myself, I, said, I, I will never, ever come back here and perform in that room. I never have, but I've, I do the urban nights there. I would start doing the urban nights. Tuesday night is called, it was called Fat Tuesday back then. And I would do the urban nights, but I was so like in my feelings a little bit. And now I, you know, she's passed away since, but now I, I don't feel like that. But when you're in your early 20s, you're trying to get name out there. I was so like, she didn't, even, you know, you're so like, she didn't watch me. Yeah. I'm telling all my friends what happened. She had the girls around her. She didn't watch my set. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I waited all three, three different Sundays. I waited for three hours for this. So I just went, I'm good. And no, so that's, and that's why I just, I just started doing all the urban nights, the black nights in LA. I could get on whenever I wanted and they got to know me. Right. And those were, not only did they become like nights I go up, those became my friends. Those are the guys I would hang out with and go watch games with or, you know, go to nightclubs with and stuff like that. So that's just kind of, that's the circle I ran with. Like, it was interesting to me because I, I didn't know you until you became my neighbor. And then I started doing research. I'm like, well, who is this guy? And then I watched all of your stand-up routines or all your stand-up specials. I'm like, this guy is fucking hilarious, you know, and dying. So here's a funny story. So my wife and I are inside watching one of your newer Showtime specials. Mm-hmm. And if you look from your house over to our house, you can kind of see the TV. Yeah. And Chris is like, what if Gary sees us watching his special? I saw it. I saw it. <laughs> and I told you <laughs> about it. You're like, would it be funny if I was knocking on your door, on your window? Wait till you see this part. <laughs> That's why I start hanging out with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got really good taste. Yeah. Hey, they're going to support me. I got to support them. <laughs> so it was just, it was an interesting thing to me because I was like, how have I not heard of this guy before? And like I said, before we go up to uh, Harris and like walking around, it's like, like you said, you're anonymous pretty much with white people and then black people everybody knows you mm-hmm. and it's 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 just, it's such an interesting thing to watch because it, to me all of your um material is funny to everybody well you go here's the thing with with comedy material the the best comics they just they don't they don't they don't um sidetrack and stuff they don't know for the sake of the laugh you just my job whether yeah, I don't expect everybody to be married to a black lady and have mixed kids, but my job is to bring into my world and be like, oh, okay, I get that. Even though I don't, I don't know that, I understand it. I mean, there was a time in my career where I did go too far left. I was like, early on when I started headlining, I'm just doing, there's no white people coming to see me at all. All my jokes was directed towards black people and black this, black that. And I was like, it hit me like, I think I was in Salt Lake. And there were so many white people in the room. And I was like, I got nervous. I go, oh, fuck. They're not going to get this. They're not going to get this. I go, I got to I gotta make a conscious effort to make sure my jokes cross over. No matter who sees it, they understand it. And that comes with time. And that's also why I love my profession because I'm in my 40s now. And I remember, um, I feel like I'm name dropping, but I had a, a meeting with Keenan Ivory Wayans about a year ago. And he said, he goes, yo, you're, you're in your Jedi years. I said, what do you mean? He goes, the 40s for comedians that start out in their 20s, those are the Jedi years because you're old enough that you have enough life experience that you can pull from so much, but you're not you're not that old that you're out of touch. 
right with the younger kids he goes you're you're right there in a pocket right now like you are right there like you should just be like your creative juices should be flowing and everything going and i, I really feel like that like i know it's cliche but i i feel like i'm i'm at my best right now because i look at some of my old sets and i cringe even the other day i was watching something from like 98 i was so young and i was like god i i was a good looking guy back then <laughs> And I was like, man, I can see why I pulled who I pulled. <laughs> I can see why kid just slept with. Yeah, right. But uh, I was like, um, man, I go, I cringe at how my delivery was, how I was walking around the stage, how I was like kind of laughing at my own stuff. I was like, oh, my God, how did I ever get on TV with that shit? But now I'm like, oh, okay. I'm right in the pocket right now, I think. Well, speaking of the being regimented, I mean, how how do you go about – writing is there a certain amount of time that you write every day or every week or how, how do you go about putting together your sets and all the things that you do is, is there a regimented amount of time that you put to your career every day no no i don't write i've never written a joke down in my life it's just all up here but i'm on stage so much i don't want to be like i'm freestyling i'm not but everything's up here like i'll get in my phone sometimes i'll put a word in my notes just a word and with if Kenny gets on my phone, she might see sweet pussy. She's like, who's sweet pussy? I go, oh, that's a joke. <laughs> but it, I'll just put a word down. And I'm like, okay, that'll trigger the joke. The one word might be 15 minutes on stage for me. But I don't ever write my jokes. I'm just like, it just is there. And I'm like, and a lot of times I'm just talking about my life. And sometimes I'll, I won't do a joke for a couple months. And, you know, one guy that's open for me, but like, hey, man, you ain't done that joke in a while. I'll be like, oh, yeah. I done that joke in a while you know it's funny how you say when you start out five minutes seems like a long time now when i'm headlining i need an hour like you okay so like you guys saw me right when like things were starting to open up a little bit in california and you you saw me one of my first sets back i was so all over the place that day because you saw like i had been on stage probably five times in four months and i was like it's like riding a bike, but you got to get on the bike a little bit before you're popping wheelies and stuff. Well, no, no. My, my favorite part about that whole night was uh, you were talking to me out back of my house about this new bit that you had you were working on. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to do it. And then uh, I'm sitting there watching you. And it was weird because because of COVID, we all had headphones on. <laughs> yeah. And they all like they lit up green. So you looked around and it looked, looked like you were on Star Wars or something like that with all these people on with uh, green headsets. But you started telling that joke, and I was laughing my ass off so much from the beginning of it because I knew what was coming. <laughs> and I'm like, thank God everybody's got headsets on because they don't know what this asshole is laughing about over here. But uh, it, that was a, that was a really cool experience for me to kind of be on the inside of how you as a comedian write your jokes or how you go through the whole process because mm -hmm. it was from us sitting on two lounge chairs out back of the house and you talking about it to way yeah. you, the way you delivered it was awesome to see well that's how you get 90 percent of your act you're just talking with your boys like i'm gonna try that i always tell my openers too when we go on the road and we do like like next week i got eight shows in toledo I tell my openers, man, if you do, you're only going up for 20, 30 minutes. If you do the same 30 minutes every night, you wasted your week. What are you doing? I go, try something different. Put it in the, you want to start, you want to get the audience in the beginning. Obviously, you want to get them in the end. But in the middle, 
you gotta try some stuff and if it doesn't work who gives a shit right you're at a club and uh, you're pushing yourself because in the end if somebody comes to a comedy show as long as i'm funny the headliner they leave happy yeah i know it sounds heartless but they don't really care about the opener right it's like if you i mean if you're going to see your favorite group live and then there's some local band opening up first if the local band like that kind of sucked, as long as live is good, exactly. John Zink's going home happy. Right. The same way with comedy shows. As long as the headliner's good, they don't count. So I'll be looking at my openers like, what are you doing? You're doing the same shit every single night. I go, you got to push yourself, bro. You know, because guys are going to roll with me. I, I want them to be like huge headliners one day. And I, I wouldn't mind opening up for them and stuff. I want to see them flourish. Yeah. I almost like, yeah, like I want to be like, I was a part of that. You know what I mean? Because what I know about the comedy business, there is enough for everybody. There's no reason to be jealous of anybody else's success or however many tickets. People. I'll give you an example. Like, I remember I was in Chicago like five years ago and I was doing the Schaumburg Improv. Kevin Hart was doing the United Center. My agent called me and was like, yo, you want to move your date? Because, you know, you guys are kind of pulling from the same audience a little bit. And I was like, no, nah, let's just see what happens. Of course, Kev sold out the United Center. I sold out all my shows at the improv and then added two more. And that weekend I was like, there's enough. There's enough for everybody in this business. So you got two big headliners in the same city, you know, and we both, there was enough people that want to see Kevin and then people want to see me, you know, and Schaumburg's about 30 minutes from Chicago or 20 minutes or something. So it still was the same market, same radio promotion, everything, but there was, there's enough for everybody, even on the same weekend. Right. You know, so that's why I was like, there's enough. No reason to be jealous of other people. So, you've been in like 20 movies. Or is it more than 20 movies? I don't know. Like It's good, a lot. Good movies? <laughs> good movie six. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your first movie? Held Up with Jamie Foxx. Okay. And Jamie saw me on stage and got me the audition. And I'm literally just some struggling comic. And like three weeks later, I'm in Saskatchewan, Canada, shooting a movie with Jamie. That cast... We were all young. Jamie was the big gun, right? So we had Nia Long, who, who still is killing it. Sarah Paulson, who's been Oscar nominated, crushing it right now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Rosalind Sanchez, who right after that got Rush Hour 2 and took off in her own. She's got her own huge fan base. Like that cast, Barry Corbin. Um, just, it was just like Jake Busey, who's Gary Busey's son, who's got his own great career. Like we were all so young and to be together all in like Jamie was the veteran. He was like 30. We were all in our early twenties and just everybody just working. It was fun. And I, I posted a picture about a couple months ago of me and Sarah. We're we look like little kids. She's just looking up at me. Cause you know, we're, we're in the, this small town done to do. And we, we were working six days a week. So our only night off was Saturday night because we wrap early and Sunday we were off. So we went to one club called city lights in Saskatchewan, the only one. And we just, took the club over and just had a ball for the six weeks we were there. It was just fun. It was just fun. Everybody was, everybody was kind of single and, and free. And it was just like, it was a good time, man. It was one of my favorite experiences in the business. And looking so, back on it, I got to spend a summer with Jamie Foxx. Who gets to say that? Yeah, no shit. So you who, what was, was that your favorite movie to make? Or what was your that favorite? That was exciting. Um, my favorite movie to make was College, which nobody saw. We shot that in New Orleans. It was like a, a, it was like a Porky's, like just fun college movie, and it was fun. I got to get real close with uh, Mini Me, Vern Troyer. Yeah, 
I, rest in peace, but that was my dude, man. I was Bearcat. He was Bearcat, and we were secret lovers. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I still have to watch it. You told me about it. I'm like, I oh, the, watch be, the, the best story is we went through we went through a strip club one night, and uh, in New Orleans, we're on Bourbon, and you know, Vern was he's the party guy, and he got all the attention, and I I felt like his handler, and I I loved every minute of it because we went into a strip club. And I'm not going to say who was in there, but there was some heavy-hitting NFL players in there. Heavy. Hall of Fame, and they were playing at the time. These strippers left the VIP with all these NFL guys and saw Vern, and that was it. Vern took the strip club over. They picked him up like that old Tootsie Pop commercial. How many licks does it take to get to the center? (laughs) And they're just passing him around. And I'm like, you know... I wasn't as big then. Nobody knew who I was, but um, we left. I remember one of the nights we left, I took his cart. He had this cart. He couldn't really get around without it. And I'm drunk as shit riding this <coughs> motherfucker down Bourbon Street. And I don't realize Vern literally cannot go anywhere without it. <laughs> You're cruising around. Oh, my God. I came back a half hour later, and Vern goes, hey, asshole. I can't go anywhere without it. I go, oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> so then the whole ride back, we're at the same hotel. He's going slow. I'm walking with him. I think I got a drink because, you know, Burby, you walk with a drink. And it's like 3, 4 in the morning. It's me and Vern just bullshit. Gary, you know I can't go anywhere without it, man. I thought you fucking let me, asshole. People come picking me up, passing me around. I go, I'm sorry, man. I I didn't know, bro. (laughs) That was my guy, man. You've done just about everything. And one of the things you did was you had your own reality TV show. Mm -hmm. Now, that, by the way, is still on Amazon Prime and BET Plus if people want to watch it. Go out and see it because I need to watch it because my wife watches all this bullshit the Real Housewives of every city in the freaking country. And none country. of them are real? That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> uh, is, is any of that shit real? It's, I don't know how every reality show is. I know ours was like, it was real. It was real, but we kind of knew what was coming. You know, some episodes were kind of planned out. We don't know what we're going to say. There's not like a script. But, you know, they're, they're not like, I mean, we had some episodes that was serious. We t- you know, I went back to my high school and talked about drug addiction and things like that. My brother passing away. And I just told him, I said, there's no cut. Just edit it. I go, but you got to keep the cameras rolling. Just be ready. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So things like that, you got to make an organic and then edit it down. But, you know, it's a, some, it's not like, um, probably 60%, 60% real and 40% is, you know, got to be ready. You know, kind of know what's coming. I just always walk in and I hear, I hate you. You're trying to ruin my life. They're just screaming at each other all the time. And people love it. It makes for good TV. You're not going to watch a show. They're like, I like you, man. You're cool. You're cool, too. You're real cool. You're cooler. (laughs) Watch that becomes a huge thing now. Somebody somebody watches the podcast go, that's a good idea. (laughs) So I wanted to dig into it a little bit because you, you know my background. I'm six and a half years sober. Um, part of my story and part of this podcast is it's called True Ambition. And True Ambition actually comes out of one of the books from um, my 12-step program I went through. And it says, the true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Hmm. When I read that, it kind of changed my perspective on things. You talked about it for a second about your brother 
uh, passing away. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about Dallas and how that all went down? Because I think what I really want to do is kind of uh, maybe help some people out that might be struggling out there with uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, some of that kind of stuff. Well, um, I think all my family members, are, are, as far as us kids, uh, Dallas, Kyle, Ashley, those all they all grew up in the trailer under my stepdad. And my stepdad is... He clearly saw. He never went to war, but he clearly suffers from PTSD and never addressed it. Mm-hmm. So, because he always used to say my childhood was worse than yours, and I have no doubt his childhood was worse than mine. But he took out all his aggression, didn't know where to place it. A lot of it came to me, and it kind of came to everybody. <clears throat> so, you got all these 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 four kids that grew up in this trailer that are all we're all suffering from childhood trauma. Luckily. Uh, with the help of my wife and other people, I got help. I got I got to deal with it. I realized what was happening. Dallas didn't. Da- my brother Dallas turned to drugs and specifically heroin. And I didn't know he was doing heroin. I knew he smoked weed. Uh, I knew he was, how I found out my brother was on heroin was he never had a cell phone for more than a couple months. So literally, I still got in my phone. If you look at it, I probably got my brother's name five times. There's five different numbers in there. And so we, most of our contact was through Facebook, Instant Messenger. And he messaged me like, Gary, can you call me? Can you call me? Um, here's a number. His, he gave me his girlfriend's phone number. So I called him. And I, at first I said, how much you need? I just figured it was money. And then he goes, no. And then he was telling me he's, uh, he, he, was, he was rambling. It didn't make sense. He goes, I don't want to die. I got a daughter, all this other stuff. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, man, I just, I need help, man. I can't do it on my own. And, and the phone went dead. I go, what is he, what is going on here? I call, either I called back or his girlfriend called me back. I can't remember, but I, was, I called right back and his girlfriend's on the phone and I could hear him kind of moaning in the background and he had shot up. So when he called me, he was getting ready to shoot up. And he was calling me like as a last, like, can you help stop this? I can't stop myself. So I go, what? And he goes, you shut up. And that's when his girlfriend said, yeah, he's using heroin. I go, what? So I'm dumbfounded right now. I said, all right. Um, she goes, I want to get him into rehab. And literally, I remember her saying, I got a hundred bucks. And I go, so I, Kenny was laying next to me, my wife. And I said, yo, Dallas, just shut up. He's all messed up. I called my mom. I said, go get Dallas. I said, you got to get him. He was living in the Section 8 apartment. I go, go down there and get him. He just shut up, Mom. I don't know if he overdosed or not. So she, I guess she went down there and got him. And in the meantime, I'm on the internet just looking up rehab facilities. And then uh, they was trying to put him in a rehab facility where it was like one night. Through 10 minutes of research, I saw you got to change people, places, and things. You got to change the people with, the place you're living, and the things you're doing. So I said, okay, he cannot go to rehab in Cincinnati. I got to get him out of town. So I found a place called the Quest House in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It's four hours from Cincinnati. So I, I said, how much is it? I get the lady on the phone. She said, it's 4100 Okay. Kenya immediately drove to the bank, got a cashier's check for $4,100. Uh, I called my mom. She got Dallas. She said, okay, we got him. Yeah, he OD'd, but he's alive. But she goes, He's going to come out of this angry. I was like, what do you mean? So she knew he was an addict. My mom knew. 
So I go, you you know this? You know he's using? They go, yeah, he's overdosed before. Nobody's ever told me. So I said, all right, mom, I got him in the Quest house. They don't open until 9 a.m. tomorrow. So she goes, all right. I said, do you want me to come to you or do you want to meet me here? What do you want to do? Because we got to leave at like four in the morning to be there when it opens. So I ended up meeting her at like three or four in the morning. They end up, I remember I met her at her work. She worked at this factory and I pulled up and we were going to go in my car. Mom said, just let's go in my car because he's passed out in the back seat. So he ended up sleeping the whole ride down there and we got there too early. They weren't open yet, but I remember I woke him up and it was like seven in the morning and he was like, we was at this McDonald's and I said, Dallas, come on, man, get up, man. And we, he goes, where are we at? And I go, we're here to get you help. And he goes, and he would never get angry with me. So I definitely had that big brother persona over him. So he was like, uh, what are we doing? I said, we're here going to get help, man. I never brought up, we're at a rehab facility. I said, we're going to get you help. All right, so this is where I'm going to be? And I was like, yeah. I said, you want anything to eat? Got him something to eat at McDonald's. We sat in the parking lot for a little bit. Then we went to a rehab center. Got him in. And uh, I remember the drive back after getting him rehab. And he was in there for five weeks. I, that's the happiest I'd see my mom because – she was like, I think she had a little hope. And she even said, she goes, this is the first time in like years that I'm not worried about a phone call coming. So he was in rehab for five, six weeks. I can't remember the exact amount of time. And I kept telling my mom, like, he cannot come back to Oxford. We got, we got to find somewhere for him to go. So I remember making phone calls to different comedy clubs asking, do they need a cook or a door guy or any any you know, minimum wage job that I can get him in. And I can, I was telling Kenny, we might have to get him an apartment and we could stay there for a little bit. I remember my mom saying, Oh, I remember Phoenix was the guy was pretty open to help me out. The manager. And he, she was like, my mom goes, Oh, he can't be 2000 miles away from his daughter. And I go, mom, do you want a dad 2000 miles away? You want a dead dad? And she goes, he just can't do that. So literally he got out of rehab, moved back, in with my mom and stepdad and he OD'd a couple more times and eventually he overdosed and died. And I'm looking, you feel kind of guilty looking back. Cause I, I should have just took the reins more. I tried to fall back cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to like act like my mom and stepdad don't know what they're doing, but they didn't know what they were doing. Right. And I was like, so looking back, I wish I would have did more, but I did do as much as I could to help him. But, um, I don't know. And then my other brother, he's been in and out of jail for using and dealing. And I just think, uh, I don't know. I think, I, I know it's how, I, I just, I don't know why I was able to get out of it and it never fell into that. Like my whole focus growing up was to prove my stepdad wrong. It wasn't to fall into the trap because he, he overdosed. He was a heroin addict. I remember visiting him in jail growing up in and out. So it was like, I didn't want to repeat the cycle and him being so abusive more mentally than physically. It was, uh, I remember just thinking, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm proving wrong. That's one reason why I've never done drugs. Right. It was like, I, my whole focus is there's no way he's ever going to say I knew it. So to this day, I'm like, when people offer me stuff, cause you know, I get it. I get offered all the time. Right. You know, cocaine and everything else, mushrooms. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'll, I'll have drinks every now and then, but I'm not like a drinker. I'm more of a social drinker. It's like, you know, if you, if you have a drink at your house, you wanted something. Yeah, I have one. 
but that's it. Nothing else. Well, there's a lot of people that, and I appreciate you going into it. There's a lot of people that, um, because of their environment, um, because of PTSD from growing up, from situations, from jobs, from wars, whatever it is, some people just can't escape from it, no matter how hard they try. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a tough thing. I'm I'm in these rooms with people, and I listen to their stories, and it's heartbreaking sometimes because they'll sit there and tell a story they do not want to use, they do not want to drink, they do not want to do it, and they know they're going to go back out and do it after sitting there and pouring their guts out that they don't want to do it because they have nothing else to turn to to make them feel decent. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just it's such a hard thing. But you know, for anybody who is listening to this or watching. You know, reach out for help, no matter what it is. Exactly what you said is exactly true. If you want to change and become a better person, all you have to do is change everything. Well, it, you also are, like, I always want to be the dumbest guy in the room. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm I think I'm pretty smart. I'm a decent guy. The, I, you know, I can read people. I don't, you know, if, if I'm the smartest guy, I'm like this, I don't, that's a room I shouldn't be in. And you are a product of who you surround yourself with. Surround yourself with good, successful people, and it's just gonna happen. Right. You're gonna you're gonna like be a sponge and start following in their footsteps and and want to do what they do and hang out with people they hang out with. Your, your circle. You know what I mean. So when I knew the people that my brother was hanging out with, I was like, that's that's not a good circle. Because I, I, there's little clues, like I should have, looking back, like, ah, I should have picked up. Remember, we had a little apartment in our little hometown one time, and I wanted to see it. So I remember I picked him up to go get something to eat one time, and it was, you know, I was like, yo, can I see your apartment? He goes, no, I don't, I don't want you to be around those animals. That's literally what he said. He almost was protecting me from himself when he was with me. I never got to, like, just go to where he lived, or I never met any of his friends. He kept that, and he got mad at my mom. When after he got out of rehab, he overdosed again, and my mom said, "Can you talk to him? Because he seems to listen to you." So I, he, I could hear him yelling in the background, and then literally, mom goes, "Gary's on the phone." He goes, "Huh?" And I said, "Just put him on the phone, mom." So he got on the phone with me after I could hear him yelling, going off. Why'd you tell him? You know? And he goes, "Hello." I go, "Dallas, can I come talk to you?" And he was like, "Yeah." No, first he, he was like this. He goes, "I don't know." I said, "Dallas, I'm just coming to talk." I'm not coming to judge you. I'm not telling you what to do. I just want to talk. He was like, all right. I said, I'll be there in an hour. Picked him up. We got something to eat. And we just talked. And I knew he was feeding me a bunch of bullshit. Right. Even when he told me, I said, Why, what happened? I said, just, just tell me what happened. I'm not, just you tell me. He gave me some story that was out of left field. And I was like, all right. And then, he, you know, he goes, but I don't know what happened, man. And I was just like, <sighs> went back, talked to my mom. I said, Mom, he's got to get out of here. Got to get out. And she just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Just wouldn't do it. Well, you know. I appreciate you going into it because it can help a lot of people when they hear stories about some folks that have went to the greatest length they can, which is dying. You know, mm-hmm. that, that is one of the places that they can go, that we can go. You know, if I were to drink tomorrow, I mean, that's, that's my next step, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I know I can't drink a goddamn thing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I used to drink everything, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that have been around me that have never seen me drink. So you have an, would you say you have, a, you have an addictive personality? Oh my like, God. You can't just have one drink and that's it. No, no. See, I don't, I don't have, luckily I don't have that. Yeah. I no, can I've, have I've, a drink and walk away. Yeah. I've seen you drink and it's like, I, I watch people like you and sipping on a drink for an hour. Yeah. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Here's <laughs> <laughs> a pussy lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell I was going to say before? We could you never said, hang out in 96. Said, if Kenya sees my phone and it says, sweet pussy, you better hope there's no phone number next to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, well, it's been awesome to have you here today, and I appreciate you being on the podcast. I want to ask you a question here at the end that I ask everybody who's on the True Ambition podcast. Mm-hmm. So, you've been through a lot. You've been on a journey from... The trailer park to being one of the most famous comedians in the black country. America. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, in all America. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so you've done a lot of things. So being where you've been, being through what you've been through, what is your true ambition in both your personal life and in your career moving forward? Ambition as far as like family wise is I always thought it was cool and I thought parents do a good job when their kids want to hang out at their house after they don't have to. So the fact that my kids still like hanging out at the house, as much as I, we bitch about being messy and everything else, I go, they don't want to go to other people's houses to hang out. So I'm like, okay, me and Katie did something right there. Cause I, growing up, I didn't want to be home. I always looked at other people's houses. Like, ah, oh, I, I could feel like I could decompress there. So the fact that my kids want to still hang out at the house, I'm like this. Okay, I'm I've succeeded in that area. I broke. I'm. I hope I was able to break the generational curse of living paycheck to paycheck. I want my kids to be like, no, there's you. You can strive for more because my mom said that to me one time. That would be the part, and the person I feel like we're doing that. Um. And my daughter's 18 and she's not pregnant yet. So we're breaking. she got to get two more years and she's breaking the, this would be the first and what I can remember of no teenage pregnancy because my mom was teenage pregnant, my grandmother and my great grandmother. I don't know after, before that, but she'll be the first. <laughs> so we still, we're running for the stars here. 20. Come on, Kennedy. <laughs> Come on, you can do it. Close them legs. <laughs> um, professional i just don't think you ever reach your goal as far as your true ambition because if i sell a thousand tickets i want to sell two thousand if i'm in a movie i want to do two movies i mean if i ever god will if i ever want an oscar i want to win two oscars yeah matthew mcconaughey kind of said it i you never reach your goals they always change so you you should never be able to reach them because once you're satisfied you stop being creative so you're always pushing yourself so i don't want to ever reach my goals as far as professionally personally i think we're doing that as we speak and it's really it's really cool to see it's really cool to see the the can't pick the kids you're going to hang out with but you can definitely influence the pool from which they choose from so i think we've done that we've shown them we've surrounded we've put them in neighborhoods and areas where they see two parent homes and even if not we see functional parents that aren't together They, they they're doing it the right way right so i think we've done that and i and the people that my kids are hanging out with i like them i like their friends 
There's not been too many people that came over the the house, and I was like, ah, watch out for that guy, watch out for that chick. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It, it hasn't been like that. So I think we we're doing it as we speak. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Um, just one last thing I'd like to say is to both you and Kenya, thank you for your guidance in uh, starting my own podcast. You know, because mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty much you guys I talked to at the beginning when I had this idea, mm-hmm. and uh, you guys both kind of uh, gave me some ideas. So. I appreciate it. Well, from here on out, lock the doors so nobody walks in and interrupts in the middle. Tony! Of and then wouldn't leave. Yeah. No, he just stand there. We should have brought him in here. He's the boss. We could have got a deal He's on not car. used to being told, you got to leave. Yeah, get the fuck out. <laughs> anyway, so everybody, thanks so much for tuning in to the True Ambition Podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.